Author Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello, and welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. I am honored that you're here. Yesterday, February 16th, was the birthday of Elliot Mintz. Elliot Mintz is a legendary broadcaster, radio, and television. He has since retired, and is now known as a media consultant. Around the time of this interview, which was in 2014, I was doing a series of interviews all connected to ElliotMintz.com, E-L-L-I-O-T-M-I-N-T-Z.com. This is one of the interviews from that series with a man named Roy of Hollywood, birth name Roy Tuckman. Roy is the host of Something's Happening, a radio program on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, for something to the tune of 45 years now. This is a rare interview. I got the interview pretty much because of ElliotMintz.com and my coverage of it. The first time I approached Roy of Hollywood about an interview, he politely turned me down. We gain a lot of insight in this interview into the host, producer, and engineer of this very unique radio program. It starts at midnight and ends in the early morning on KPFK 90.7 FM. Along the way, we talk quite a bit about his friend Elliot Mintz. If you want to support the mission of the Paul Leslie Hour, you can do so. Just go to thepaulleslie.com, click on Support the Show. The show is possible through viewers and listeners like you. Now let's get into the interview with Roy of Hollywood. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a pleasure to introduce you to this man, Roy of Hollywood. He has hosted Something's Happening on KPFK out in Los Angeles for 38 years. Now, that brings to question this. Is there any radio show out in Los Angeles that has been on the air as long? Not that I know of, although there are, there are, I believe there are shows that have been on longer than 38 years, but are not long, are no longer on. Uh, Ray Bream, I think, was on for over 40 years on uh, KABC. He was a conservative talk radio show host on uh, with KABC. I want to go back. One thing that I've heard you say several times, not only in an interview you did with Jay Kugelman, but also when Elliot started to ask you a question, that's Elliot Mintz, you love radio. Can you remember the early times with radio when you were listening to it as a very young person? Oh, yes, of course. I'll tell you uh, one of the great thrills I had at age four. I used to listen to the... uh, Sunday Funnies. There was a, there were a couple of programs where they would read the comics, the Sunday comics. And there was a, a show that did, they read the Examiner, the LA Examiner, and there was a show that read the LA Times. And I'm not sure which, I think it was the Times read by a fellow named Stu Wilson. And it was a kid's show. It was like, I don't know, seven or eight in the morning on Sunday morning. And he also did birthday announcements. So if you had a birthday, you would send a card to Stu Wilson. I don't even remember the the, uh, station. Then he would wish you happy birthday on the radio. So my fourth birthday, Stu Wilson said happy birthday to me by name on the radio. And it was like I was immediately world famous. And it was quite a thrill. What about some of the radio shows that you liked? Were you dedicated to any of them? Oh, yes. I listened to those. was a Saturday lineup. Let's Pretend was very important. They did the dramatizations of fairy tales for kids. And there was a lineup of, of shows after that that were not, not kids shows, but Things like was a straight arrow or let's George let George do it Grand Central Station, that was Hollywood Theater Hollywood Playhouse something like that. I would listen to that lineup. I also, I guess one of my first lessons in being naughty when my bedtime was seven thirty, 
I would manage almost every night to catch I Love a Mystery, which was on from 10 to 10.15 at night. So I don't know what I listen to in the intervening hours, but I rarely miss I Love a Mystery, which I really love. And also uh, the, the Lone Ranger, which was instrumental in my learning to accept and love classical music. Amazing thing that they did that's never discussed. And the Whistler, I love the Whistler, and this Lux Radio Theater, and Buster Brown, Smiling Ed McConnell. There were um, afternoon kids shows. It's very funny. I have a blank on what they were. There was a Bobby Benson and the B-Bar-B writers and a Tom Mix that I enjoyed. I, I listened to a lot of radio, which I think was probably not looked upon very positively. I imagine that uh, a generation before, when before there was radio, people, kids were, might have been chided for spending too much time reading books. <laughs> <laughs> and before that, I, I don't know, but something that would, in any, anything that would be something that you could, you do by yourself rather than socializing with family or friends or playing football or whatever you're supposed to do instead of curling up in a corner and listening to the radio, reading books, or of course watching television. And now it's <laughs> Being on the internet or on your, you know, texting on your telephone that the kids are doing. And you grew up in Southern California. Yes, I was born in Los Angeles in California Hospital. What do you think about Los Angeles? You've been there for some time. Oh boy. Well, I have a lot of, there's some things I like, you know, because I, I was born here and I've seen a lot of changes and now there's, there's an amazing amount of traffic it's really bothersome I don't go out very much but when we, when we do go out there's I mean you stop at, at at lights and you go through two three or four lights before you finally get to the place where you're at the front of the line and and get to uh, proceed across the intersection and that's very bothersome I don't see how I could stand if I had to do that every day, which I did actually for a while, taking a rush hour freeway traffic. There was a period I was, I went away to school in Berkeley from it's about 1956 to 62 or so, 61, and it seemed that every time I came back to Los Angeles, there was a new freeway. <laughs> it was quite amazing. But a lot of the buildup happened after the war, which is World War II. It was just a huge amount of people that moved to uh, Southern California, Los Angeles after World War II. So it was a, a lot of changes happened after uh, after that period, and the buildup just kept being built up. There was a period, a long period, when the the tallest building in California was L.A. City Hall. And that was actually being competed against by the ferry building in Los a in uh, San Francisco. And I think they're inches difference. But L.A. City Hall, now if you t look at a picture of downtown L.A., L.A. City Hall is just a little tiny thing. Tell us about how you felt the first time you leaned in and your voice was heard on the radio. When oh. you leaned into the microphone, the first time your voice was broadcast. 1962. I did a program, uh, it was an interview on KPFK, strangely enough, <laughs> and actually I'd been on TV a couple of times before that, but so radio was not my you know, first big medium that I was on, but I did an interview, I had a, a girlfriend whose father had been uh, commander of three British air bases in World War II. And was a fly. He was a flyer, and he had. We had talked about. He was a Colonel T. A. Haldeman, and we had talked about. He would. He never flew, because it was so too dangerous. Because of there's this terrible problem with air traffic control, and uh, it was just too damn dangerous to fly. So he would never fly. 
and nobody knew about this. So I did an interview um, with him. I, I went to KPFK, and it was a lot more freeform than, and you didn't have a lot of pressure of people wanting to to do things. And also, there were no, there were not so many scheduled programs. It was more every day was more more varied, except for a few a few regular programs. I told the program director. I just walked in and told him, you know, there was this problem with air traffic control and I wanted to do an interview and he said great so I got the station had two quote portable unquote reel-to-reel tape recorders and uh, they were plug-in but they were you could carry them if you were strong enough Ampex and I took the tape recorder to uh, Colonel Haldeman's house also my girlfriend's house and I interviewed him about air traffic control it was a 15-minute interview, and it actually got put into the program guide, although they made a mistake. Nobody knew what air traffic control was at the time, so it was called the person who typed up the program guide mistakenly put air force control. <laughs> and uh, my name was put in the program guide, and I was on the air in the afternoon for a 15-minute interview, and it was very thrilling to hear my program. So that was 1962. My second radio program was in 1973. I did a program, I co-produced I co a program uh, on the trying to prevent uh, Santa Monica, trying to stop the destruction of Santa Monica Pier. That was my second program, and that was, I think, an hour show. There was a hearing of some sort. And so I decided that at that time I would do a program on the station every 10 years or so. I would do, I would do something on the radio. <laughs> but I wasn't particularly thrilled. I never went after trying to do a radio show. That was a, a request. I worked at the station. I came to the station and worked there for five years doing off-the-air things, even full-time. And I would see the public affairs producers cramming books, so spending the morning or afternoon cramming for an interview to take place. And that seemed to be about the most scary thing that you could do is you were to be committed to go on the radio in front of you know, billions and billions of people and talk about something that of which expertise was newly gained. <laughs> That was just a very scary. So I was not interested in doing anything like that. And I, what popped to mind was a cartoon that I saw in the New Yorker, one of the old New Yorker cartoons, and it has two caterpillars looking up and seeing a butterfly go by, and one caterpillar saying, they'll never get me up in one of those. <laughs> and that's exactly how I felt. But I was asked during a fun drive in 1976 if I would go on. Mike Hodell, who was in charge of the fun drive, a, a long-time KPFK person, and he said, why don't you go on at midnight and see what you can do in terms of, of course, raising money. And at that time, we would shut down at midnight and come back on the air at, at 6. So I said, well, all right. So they gave me an engineer and... I had a long experience with listening to the station and, and before that KPFA and I, <laughs> I forgot about the KPFA and I knew a lot. I was acquainted with a lot of programs that were on tape in the downstairs archives and so I went on at 12 o'clock and, and with an engineer and would play, play tapes starting with Alan Watts tried to raise money, and in 11 nights in November 1976, I raised over $3,000. That's a all total in 11 nights, which was not serious money, but good money, and a lot better than zero. That was the beginning of the idea of the show, because I kind of enjoyed doing that, not being on the radio so much, but programming the radio. I enjoyed that very much. The name of your program is Something's Happening. Where does that title originate? It just popped into my mind because I'm a night person. I've always been a night person since childhood. 
and also a radio person. <laughs> On the radio, there was nothing happening. <laughs> if you like talk radio, or of course, old radio was was gone. The old old radio programs, and uh, there were no you know iPods or cassette players or anything to you know to save easily save programs to rebroadcast at yet more convenient time. There were two major talk radio programs. So there was Ray Breen on KABC. He was a conservative talk radio host, and which I, I I would not, I did not enjoy. And then there was Ben Hunter on KFI did the um, the Night Owl show, and he was actually, as far as I know, the very first talk radio. And he was sort of, it was let the listeners talk and you accept whatever's going on. I would, I sort of describe that as a lumbago show. People would call and talk about their lumbago or their, you know, I mean, their, their personal things. There was no serious airing of current issues generally. Ben was a very nice guy. He uh, would talk with anybody about anything. What later came to me was that the three major talk radio programs, I, including myself, which was not major, but uh, there was Ray, Ben, and Roy. So it's three-letter names. Then Ben was replaced by Ron, Ron McCoy. So the three talk radio shows that were on were Roy, Ray, and Ron. <laughs> And Roy and Ray and Ron were two names that I was called frequently by people because there weren't very many Roys. So it's Roy, Ray, and Ron. That puts the uh, obviously the universe is playing a joke. <laughs> um, but in general, there was nothing happening, and so I thought, well, we're going to have something happening. We even made up. I went on with a fellow named Joe Adams as a co-host. We made a promo that we would go up and down the dial and there was nothing happening. And then they would find something's happening. So that became the name of their show. You mentioned that you've always been a night person and the tagline, I guess, is radio for night people. Do you find that there's a certain mystery, a certain allure to the nighttime? Oh, yes. The nighttime is quiet. The noisy people are asleep, generally. The people listening to the radio frequently, that is the, the only thing that they have to do. It's not in the background. They're not at work, you know, with something on. And they're able to devote their attention to something. And they are able to do that for a long period of time. So I'm able to stretch without losing audience or without losing much audience to stretch their span of attention or take advantage of their increased span of attention. So if something goes on without interruption for an hour or for an hour and a half or so or more, then that's perfectly fine. And But of course, during the day, that would be intolerable. And nobody could, very few people could or would be willing to listen that long to anything, especially going deep into your mind or your psyche or your intellect and doing very profoundly in-depth learning experience. Like you say, it's not commonly done. It's certainly not done in the daytime. But the interesting thing about your program is that you do play things that are very thought-provoking and in-depth. What is it you like about the medium of radio? What it can do? What it can be? Well, there's different kinds of learning People, people, people for learning. There are you know, people that learn in kinesthetically, and people that are visual types, and people who are audio types. And so, if you're an audio kind of person, then that is what you you prefer, you're most comfortable with, or you enjoy, or most communicative, or get the most communication from. So, with the audio. Audio only without being, as I say, contaminated with visual information as television is. Distracting, uh, irrelevant visual information, very prejudicial. You hear the, you get very profoundly attached 
there's a McClellan called, called radio is the hot, is the hottest medium. It has the most amount of information, according to McClellan, on his understanding media. By the way, if you don't know what McClellan, so you, you hear more stuff. You hear the people that you hear. You don't hear just the words or the thought, but you hear them. You hear them. You get you you form a relationship with with them, and my idea, and, and that's what actually happened. And my thought is that if you put on the wisest, greatest, whatever, most wonderful, most enlightened people that there are, in a a large volume, then people get to experience these people in a profound way over a long period of time. So it provides a very profound growth experience, a growth and, and listening experience and relating experience. I am not one of the people that I, you know, <laughs> that I'm, I'm not there to become attached, to become a, a tachy, but I present people who are Worthy of knowing in a sense. That's what the show um, is based on, at least, uh, you know, theoretically. And a lot of these people, you definitely would never hear anywhere else on the radio dial. Just incredibly interesting, fascinating, and inspiring kind of things. What is the most remarkable thing that you have played? The most remarkable thing that I've played? Yeah. Holy cow. <laughs> this is interesting. You know, what comes to my mind is Jack Error. <laughs> One of the stories, which is now common knowledge, but at the time it was news to everybody, back about about 20 or 25 years ago, this fellow Jack Herrer came on to the show talking about marijuana. It was something that I'd heard a, a, a program about in the 1950s at KPFA. And there was even big argument about it on the air. There was Alan Watts had talked about it, about psychedelics and, and, uh, hemp. It was, hemp, it was marijuana, it was, it was the name. And then, uh, another pundit on KPFA, a, a literateur called Kenneth Rexroth, put down Alan Watts for prescribing Mexican goofballs as a way to enlightenment. Mexican goofballs at the time were, I believe, a mixture of cocaine and heroin in a pill or something like that. You know, and those were goofballs. They were but which Alan Watts did not mention at all. But it was a drug, supposedly, which is not a drug. Anyway, Jack Herrer came on to talk about us for uh, this forbidden subject and we played a movie that was put on by the US government called Hemp for Victory and that was produced by the government in World War II to encourage farmers to grow hemp because the navy needed rope and we were cut off from Manila Manila uh, in the Philippines and we needed material for rope and it turned out that hemp you could make the best kind of the superior rope from hemp and the government needed hemp for rope and so they encouraged the farmers to grow hemp for victory for the war effort that's the World War II Jack Herrer had investigated this and the Nixon government denied the existence of this film that he heard about or read about, but he went to the Library of Congress and actually found the film. Wow. And so we played the soundtrack to that film. It was this is imagine in the nineteen early nineteen eighties, it's a United States government promoting the grow growing of hemp, marijuana, which was hemp. What's this? What's this? Hemp? Hemp is sound so innocent. And marijuana, of course, is guilty because it's a Mexican term for hemp. And then he started talking about, oh, it has uh, medicinal benefits, and he talked a lot about those and how it can replace 
you can and anything you can do with oil you can do with hemp you make fuel and fiber and medicine and he went on and on and it was like what is this i guess we'd call now conspiracy theory <laughs> and kind of broke the news but now over the last a couple of decades <laughs> the word the word has gotten out a little bit and it's no longer a secretive and forbidden about this terrible drug that only uh, minorities use hence the law and is no good for anything and etc it's only the the USDA or the DEA thinks that anymore so that was pretty shocking that might have been that might have been the most amazing program. I don't even know where the tape is actually, <laughs> but that was Jack, uh, the late Jack Herrer, and he promoted these ideas, these truths, and was uh, instrumental in the current popularity and legalization of medical marijuana, and which he was against and legalization for even recreational marijuana, which was also the glue that, that held the 60s together. So I guess I chose that. There are probably others, but there was another one when they started in the, also in the early 1980s. The government went on a rampage against the Mexican fruit fly, started spraying malathion in, from helicopters all over the city of Los Angeles because 40 miles away, they, they discovered a fruit fly. And the fruit fly would destroy all of our crops, and it would you know, destroy the economy and everything. And they, they had helicopters went out every week to spray the city. And, it, and of course, they held that, oh, this malathion is harmless. You can drink it, and it's no problem. But, of course, we knew better than that. So I dedicated the program to Malathion. I just stopped everything and played every night, all night, Malathion. Caused a major disturbance. The listeners were mad. Many were really mad because their program was gone. It was all Malathion. And it was running counter to what all the media were saying about that it's good and it's got to protect the economy and kill the fruit flies and it's harmless. And I even had, amazingly, the number one hottest New Age kind of person in the country was Kevin Ryerson, who was Shirley MacLaine's guru or major teacher. And Shirley MacLaine had come out with a series of films on her life and how Kevin Ryerson was a major influence on her. And he was just, you know, really hot. I mean, I'd never had him on the show. I wouldn't even consider because he was big, you know. And uh, he called me and he asked that I stop playing all the Malathion stuff and go back to my regular show. <laughs> and which even, I guess, contained the possibility that I could have Kevin Ryerson on my program. Ha ha ha. But I didn't stop until they stopped and they did stop. And that was. That was really important. I, it was terrible. It was really hard work because we recorded hearings during the day or we recorded uh, demonstrations and interviews during the day and then played them at night. I can't do that anymore. <laughs> but And, and Diane, my, uh, my partner, uh, did some documentaries on it. That was a major time at, on the show. Our special guest is Roy of Hollywood the host, producer, and engineer of Something's Happening. You said in an interview to Jay Kugelman that you don't really like to be a public person, yet you work in the media. Do you find that to be contradictory? No, because I like the show to be public, and I like the, the people on the show to be public, and I am just tangentially on the show. If it weren't for the fun drives... No, I would be almost totally invisible. Nobody would know me. So I just, I consider my model in this, of course, Elliot is, Elliot Mintz is a person that's influenced me to uh, do this interview at all. Because I told you, I, you know, I had told you a couple of times that I didn't want to do an interview about this because I'm really too boring. I'm really too boring. My model is Ed Sullivan. Ed Sullivan did a show on television called Your Show of Shows. It was probably the biggest 
program on TV. But Ed Sullivan did not tell jokes. He didn't sing. He didn't dance. He didn't do acrobatics. He was not a ventriloquist. He would just come on and introduce the program, the the uh, the guests, and they would do their acts. Nobody is interested in, in is Ed Sullivan married? Uh, does does he wear boxer briefs? Does he have any children? Anything about? I mean, Ed Sullivan was not invisible, but the show the show was his. But he was not person of interest, you might say. But it was his show, and he created a lot of major careers with his show and some of the you know the greatest great moments in United States history is when the Beatles and the Stones went on the Ed Sullivan show. So I consider myself to be Ed Sullivan or my model for myself is I am Ed Sullivan and I do the show and I'm very happy to to be given credit for the show and everything. But I don't want to be particularly uh, major. I don't want to be one of the people that is of interest to the audience. When I was on with Elliot in, in 1979, I think with Elliot Mintz would come on my show and occasionally we called at, at the, the idea of a listener where there was action in Iran. Ir- the Iranians were holding United States hostages. And we called the Iranian embassy and talked with one of the students who were holding American hostages in the American embassy in Iran. Somehow we got through and Elliot did one of his great interviews with the uh, hostage taker, one of the hostage takers. And because of that, there was a period of a couple of weeks when, when I was in the spotlight and I got, you know, calls and and inquiries and from the major press because this was the only situation where a hostage taker was interviewed on the air and I hated that and I didn't ever want to get into that spotlight again and I haven't <laughs> but that is what is wished for you know a ticket to fame and you get recognition and you get exposure and everything but I don't want fame I don't want recognition and I don't want exposure but Elliot and I we got a uh, best spot news coverage award from the Associated Press for that little uh, adventure you had Elliot Minch on your program not too long ago to, <laughs> yes. to kind of talk about this website ElliotMinch.com great Great website. It is quite remarkable. But the man behind the website, Elliot Mintz, who would you say he is? <laughs> I don't know. Elliot is. Elliot did a program on KPFK in the 1960s. He did a, several programs, one called Looking Out, and then one called uh, Looking In, and then Looking Out. He had just come fresh from LACC Media School, and KPFK was again in the earlier days. It had a lot of open time, and a lot. It was looking for stuff or allowing stuff to come on. They sort of stuck him on the air. He brought in a young audience, and also a uh, expanded our small spiritual or metaphysical audience too. And he's extraordinarily talented interviewer. He has an amazing uh, empathy and interest in people. And it was a real treat to to listen to him and get to know him. KPFK was his first foray into the uh, media. And then he grew. He went on several other stations and then on television and was a major, I think, CBS a television reporter and got into uh, promotion and uh, became friends with John Lennon and Yoko and spent a lot of time with them. Then got acquainted with or uh, in business with, I think they were A-list celebrities, but has never, somehow never lost his essential humanity, which is extraordinary. He was an activist. And he led a uh, big parade in the Sunset Strip to take back the Sunset Strip. He was uh, instrumental in organizing a um, love-in, the first love-in 
which was huge in the exposition park. It was a formative period in the 1960s. He introduced in a major way Ram Dass and Jack Garris. He interviewed Alan Watts and just did a lot of exploration so, of uh, reality inside and outside. And, and he was always interesting. And even though he was younger than I, and his audience, I guess, was younger than, than I, I still found him really interesting. And I was a big uh, listener. From your experiences knowing him, in the professional sense that you've known him, do you think that Elliot is kind of a magnetic person? Oh, yeah. He's he's one of a kind. One of a kind. He'll come right out and he eliminates a huge, a huge amount of gains by saying, I am not a smart person, he says right away. So that eliminates all of the uh, competition for, you know, how smart you are, how much information you have, how much history you know, uh, just how intelligent you are in, in that kind of sword fighting. And it's very disarming. And he just he just hugely empathetic. I'm not a trusting person, but I trust Elliot. This is why I'm doing this interview at all. But I, I do I love Elliot and a lot of people love Elliot. He's he's just an amazing one of a kind person. I have barely touched his his background and his experience, but I would say uh, visit his website, which is free, to see all the all the things he's done and things he thinks and and the people that he's had his eight million. I think it was not that many, but I think it's two hundred and forty chapters of the Lost Lennon tapes, which was a national radio program playing the tapes that John Lennon made that. Had never seen, had never seen the light of day, and that he played. It was also, I would call more than you, anybody could possibly want to know about John Lennon and his. But it's also, if you're interested in the Beatles and the formative and the background and the the other side, it's there. And he has a lot of that uh, posted. And the actually the uh, Iranian hostage uh, program is there and just this amazing website again it's free this is not an advertisement for something that's gonna make some bucks for somebody <laughs> what did you find on elliotmitch.com that was particularly interesting to you i like his background he has a, a lot of material by marianne williamson which surprised me i haven't done that much exploring on it because i <laughs> I spend a lot of time listening to things that are going to be or not going to be on my program, and none of that is going to be on my program because you know the various copyrights. Although I'm sure Elliot would allow allow that. His having Jack Garris on was the major thing that Elliot did in my life, uh, in many lives. And Jack Garris was a teacher and a pioneer, and never got. Famous, never wanted to, I'm sure, but having Jack on as a video of Jack Garris is just was astounding. It happened, I thought, for the first time in many years while we were doing the show, and I was just carried away. I was just watching, <laughs> watching Jack, and I completely forgot that, hey, you're on the radio, idiot. <laughs> you have a show to, you know, shepherd a lot of Ramdas. Ramdas also was a major, major person beginning in the 1960s not just because he was you know he was a partner with Tim Leary at the university and in psilocybin experiments but Ramdas was the first major person that was like a regular american person or he was a psychologist who uh, got interested in eastern spirituality and went to india and found a guru and learned a lot of things and translated Eastern mysticism into Western language. And he was just a major, major person. Elliot had him on many times. And there's a great deal of Ramdas on Elliot's website, as well as a great deal of Tim Leary on, that I also had on my show. You can get lost in that place, uh, yeah. in his jukebox. <laughs> kind of working our way back to you. You've been doing this for 38 years. What have you given up to do this? 
<laughs> what have I given up? I haven't given up anything. I My life is dedicated to the show and also to my partner, Diane, who I met through the program <laughs> and because of the program. She was my... She was my groupie, and we've been together for 30 years now. And <laughs> But I am a night person, but now I have to be a night person. I have no choice if I... So that is a certain limitation in your life. If you must be that, you cannot be a day person. I used to be able to split that, but now uh, if I do something during the day, if there's a party or a demonstration or a meeting and I go to it in the afternoon, I pay a price. And there's nothing I hate worse than to be sleepy during my show. It's terrible. And or to you know, be at risk of falling asleep during my program. <laughs> and, and which has happened, but not not obviously. I've nodded off for a few minutes, but other substitute has, has actually fallen asleep during the show and which featured two and a quarter hours of radio silence because <laughs> the program was over and he was asleep, so nothing else was put on until he woke up. But when I came to KPFK, it was, for me in my life, a last resort. didn't know what to do. It was very rough times in the early 70s. The age-old enemy, Richard Nixon, was running for re-election. We were in Vietnam. The police were cracking down on the uh, hippie culture of which I was on the edge. I had given up my academic career. I had given up my working career. I had been a social worker and an auditor for the county. And I didn't know what to do to help you know, fight the good fight. <laughs> I had fought and won against being drafted and being sent to Vietnam after I quit school, a successful battle against the draft board. I just didn't know what to do, and KPFK was there as a major force for the good guys. So I just walked in. They have an open door. I have a, a lot of energy and a lot of good experience with a whole lot of things. I was willing to, as they say, as you see in the, in the uh, collective group living situations that happened during the 60s, there was nobody to, everybody would, uh, everybody would smoke and drink and play, but nobody would wash the dishes <laughs> or clean the house. I was the one that cleans the house and washes the dishes. So I came with that in mind. I came to KPFK and started just walked in the door and started the equivalent of washing the dishes and vacuuming the, the house to keep the place alive and as a volunteer and just picking up more and more jobs to do working uh, actually it was 365 days a year all day and I would live it actually living at the station which was not legal but I would close the office door and sleep and then work all night and work all day. It's just very strange. But that was something to do that was a benefit that was open to me. Things just sort of happened. As I told you, five years later, I was asked to, to do a show to see what I could do during the fun drive. That's evolved from doing a, a lot of things to doing several things plus doing a show. <laughs> but it was out of love for the station and what the station could do and was doing and had done for me personally. And I dedicated my life to the station. What is the best thing about being Roy Tuckman? Holy cow. I don't even have an answer for that. I was just listening to a rebroadcast of an old program in the hours before I talked to you. And... My Monday night and Thursday night shows are used as fill on the Progressive Radio Network, Gary uh, Null's web, web station, it's prn.fm. I was listening to Natalie Goldberg talking about Zen and Katagiri Roshi, her Zen teacher, 
And he said, if you want to be enlightened, then fall in love and take care of someone. That's probably the best thing I do. I fell in love about 30 years ago with Diane, and uh, I take care of her. She takes care of me. That I would say the best thing about being myself, plus the, the my program, which is what I do besides my relationship. So those are the two major things in my life of great value. Are there any dreams that you want to see come true that have not yet? You mean personal dreams? Yeah. Yes. I have some music in my soul that I listen to at any time I want that have has not been put into the external world. I am not working on it. And it's something that in many of the programs, I, of the many, many I've done on the creativity, if you have a book or a painting or a sculpture or a whatever in your mind, it's got you and it will never leave. And this has got me and it, it has never left and evidently will never leave until it's done. But I'm not doing doing anything with it. And you have composed music in the past. You had that album, Fiesta. Yes, Fiesta was coming halfway. That was 15 years ago. I actually did a, a CD. And that was a major change. That's when, that's when I stopped making music for play and enjoyment and started making, making CD or making, you know, a preparing something for a public release. And took all the fun out of it, all of the fun out of it, and that's one of the reasons that I don't, I don't do it anymore. My next piece is something totally different, My, and it actually came much earlier than Fiesta, any of the things from Fiesta, but has got all kinds of metaphysical implications too. And it's a banjo concerto. Which now there is, I understand, banjo concerti uh, <laughs> on the, that uh, people have done, and that's my punishment for you know, not doing it. Somebody else did it, but they didn't do what I did, what I have. But I've been, as a matter of fact, my actual, and I'd forgotten my actual first appearance on the radio was in on KPFA in Berkeley in 19, so about 1958, 57, 58, there was a program on KPFA called Saturday Night Special, gosh, I forgot, it was, it was hosted by Gert Chiarito. It was, it was during the folk, before the folk boom, before the Kingston Trio and made folk music popular, there was though a very alive Big vibrant folk music movement in Berkeley, and I learned to play the five-string banjo. I have a lot of musical talent, I'm mostly untrained, sort of untrained. And I went on to the Saturday night, the midnight special. That's what it was called, midnight special. I went on and played, played and sang a couple of times on that show, hosted by Gert Chiarito. I subsequently found out that. When KPFA opened initially in 1949, first went on the air for the very first time, the very first Pacifica station, the person who pressed the button that turned on the transmitter was Gert Chiarito. <laughs> so there's a historic coincidence. But that was a kind of being folk, composed some classical music on the banjo, which is classical, you might say classical oriented music that I played and now the technology has put into everyone's hands a orchestra with and on the computer so I could I have the orchestral accompaniment to my banjo piece to that I that the computer would generate that I could put on a computer and accompany myself with an orchestral sound. But I just haven't done it because Again, I, I don't do it for fun anymore. It would be a, you know, preparing a CD, and that's no fun. 
And then, of course, after you prepare a CD, you have to try to sell it. And if you don't want to sell it, it's not going to sell. So there's just no fun in it anymore, but it won't go away. And I've had some profound experiences around that that have illustrated its importance to do, but I just haven't done it. I got too many, too many other things to do. I'm kind of going to end kind of open-ended here. For anyone who is listening to this, what would you say to them? Who's listening to this interview? <sighs> totally open-ended. Be alive. There's too many dead people walking around and not enough live people. And if you don't know how to be alive, then learn how. My last question. Who is Roy Tuckman? Just a guy down at the, uh, the last chapters of life who has is flawed in many ways and pretty good in many ways. And, oh, bougie. I love the bougie. I'm a bougie man. No, nobody special. I remember, because uh, I, I, I do tend toward uh, Asian spirituality, which I just, I, I love and embrace from my own psychology. But there's a story of a Tai Chi master who had a photograph taken of he with his class and his wish was that if you see this photograph you won't particularly notice him and I like that I see a value in that for me so if you decide to hear the show <laughs> don't notice me but you know I it's my class that's my my program but I don't care if, about being noticed about it. I get my satisfaction from all of my, my satisfaction from the doing of it and none, not, I'm just not interested in particularly in a recognition or I want the program to be successful for the station as a support for the station and as a, as a unique educational source if you are, have any of those bents. So good listening, and if you don't like it, then maybe find something else to listen to or love or pay attention to. Have a good life, and but try to make it alive. Roy, I know you don't normally do interviews, so I have to express my gratitude. It's It's been a good experience for me to talk to you. I admire what you do. Well, thanks, Paul, and uh, you can thank Elliot for for uh, arranging this, and he sees great things for your future. His judgment is tops. You will obviously have a successful career, and don't be there will be uh, uh, setbacks, and don't let the don't let this bastard get you down. Thank you. <laughs> I will try. I know that they can do that. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, Roy, thanks again, and have a wonderful day. Okay, you too, Paul. <laughs> All right. Bye.